Get a jump start on 2024 in a new Kia from Robert Brogdon's Olathe Kia. Shop their large selection, including the new Sorento, Nero, and Soul models. You'll score big with low prices, trade assist cash, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit OlatheKia.com. The Zone with Jason Anderson. It's hot out it's okay. here. My knee pits are sweating. I'd love a little breeze on them. Weekdays from 10 to 2 on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Rolling on here in the zone on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Still no Jason Anderson. Hope to have him back tomorrow. Josh Briscoe and Beards McFly with you. Joined now, though, by the man who can really help us elevate our college basketball conversation and a lot of other conversations as well. It's Myron Metcalf of ESPN joining us on behalf of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Greater Kansas City. And not only now can you see him in all the usual places on ESPN, but joining Matt Jones on Sunday mornings with Matt and Myron. Myron, congrats on the new gig. Uh, I imagine that we'll be able to, to hear that around here, both on 810 and over on ESPN Kansas City on Sunday mornings. Uh, looking forward to, to hearing you and Matt get together. I appreciate it. Yeah, we've been doing shows for a while. They just kind of formalized it, you know, and, and gave us a name. So uh, that's cool, man. We're looking forward to it. Sometimes the name really is the important part, right? Like that's when you stop being the substitute teacher. Yeah, yeah. Now, now it's official. My name, my name's on the show. I mean, right. so now, now I got, I got a little bit of power. I feel like, right? right. I think, yeah, I think that's where that, that's where that comes from. I also, I, I was hoping that I could just get Jason to ask you about this for pretty much the last week because you really, you really touched on an important topic on Twitter a little while ago as you were tweeting about. What the ideal perfect form of weather is, I think you're on the right side yeah. of history here. You had some yeah. really standout responses that that just challenged me personally. Um, could you give mm-hmm. us your mo here on on what the perfect weather day looks like and what the lunatics and your responses tried to to make you believe? Yeah, I, th- I think it's 68, partly sun- sunny, with with like a slight breeze. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think I think that's the the perfect weather. Um, what I realized in my responses is that. We really can't listen to Florida people about weather <laughs> because they really don't live in America. Like That's they right. live somewhere else, yes. you know. <laughs> and like there were people who were saying eighty, and I'm like, how do you live in that? What do you mean eighty and humid? Like I can't breathe. So I realized that like there's a part of this country that's kind of separate from the rest of us and how they view the sun. And, and that was alarming. That was alarming for me. I think that geographical line is really important because I've always been a yeah. Midwestern guy, but my, my family moved down to Florida a few years ago, and so now my mom's sending me like their weather report. I mean, literally yesterday, she's like, oh, crazy weather this weekend. It's like 86 every day. And it's late yeah. February. I, I got a light jacket on today. I don't mind my 60 yeah. degrees. <laughs> Yes, my brother lives in Orlando, and like we don't speak the same language, you know. And and, and it, it's amazing to me. I don't know if you noticed this. The Midwest people who move to Florida get converted very fast, so like, fast. Monday they're in the Midwest. By Friday they're like, "What do you mean it's not eighty-five? Yeah. Like, what is this? Like, like what, what happened to you? It's been five days. Relax, okay? You're still a Midwest person. Don't go, you know, saying that it should be eighty-five when we all know that that is not the best weather." environment for people by the first week that they they have had their feet touch the sand they no longer own long pants they're just gone 100 it's just shorts and flip flops they get rid of them yeah what yeah, they don't and, and then they look i guess for me what i feel sometimes is like 
it's almost like they look down at us yes. in our weather a little yes. bit. Like, that's the problem I have. It's like, please don't, like, give me that whole I feel sorry for you attitude. Like, that's what I get sometimes when I talk to my brother, and it's like, I don't want that, okay? I really don't want that. I had to double check. I'm sorry to put my mom on blast because she's probably listening right now. But she texted me some crazy, unpredictable weather coming up in our area with a little uh, kissing emoji. And it's 80, 84, 84, 84, 84, 84, 84. I don't want that weather, man. I pit out at like 70. How do you do that every day? I don't know. I'm outside every day in that. I understand. See, the thing about this year in the Midwest, you go to vacation in those places. Right. And the great thing about vacation is... It's three, four, five, six, seven days, whatever it is, and you have prepared yourself to have this experience. <laughs> Great. That's a lot different than living in it, man. Yes. 85 and humid. Like one person told me he was like, it's either mid-80s or nothing for me, and he wants oh. the sun barreling down. I'm like, do you want to be in an oven, sir? Yes. Is, is that your ideal temperature for you to feel like you're in an oven? Because that's what that is to me. I don't understand it. I'm not a sauna guy either, so maybe, I don't know. Maybe that just happens at a certain age. You move down south, and yeah, that's, that's what happens. But uh, I'm really glad know. to know that we can be allies on this one because we gotta we yeah. got to keep our distance from these Florida people. we got to fight Florida people, man, and their weather takes. They're just not, you know, they're not for us. we got to fight Florida people period honestly but weather weather in particular uh, I'll, I'll tell you one other place uh, that I uh, that I hadn't been in quite a while that I was at on Saturday that did have me feeling like it was the midst of Florida um, all the great things that Allen Fieldhouse brings good air conditioning is not one of them uh, but I, I wanted to yeah. ask you I wanted to go back to, to Baylor before we talk about KUTCU last night um, because that first half second half experience being back in Allen Fieldhouse was even for me who should know better better by now at halftime I was like oh no okay you might really be in trouble and then the game turned completely on its head in the second half um, not even just for KU side of things but like what what KU and Baylor both brought to that game I'm, I'm curious if that was as fun for you to watch on from afar as it was uh, for me to be in the building I mean, I don't know if it was fun for Baylor in the second half. No, that's true. You know, I don't know how much fun they were having down double digits to Kansas. No, but it's it's just an environment. Someone asked me the other day. They were like, what are the buildings you have to go to in college basketball? Like, what's your bucket list? I'm like, well, you know, Cameron, Assembly Hall, Allen Fieldhouse. you you got to go and just experience it because I've watched teams break in that yeah. building. Like, I, I've been, you know, at games where you're like, okay – they're done with, like, eight minutes to play in the first half. Like, they're just not going to respond because it's just too much. It's overwhelming to them, and, and that's what happens in that building. Like, to me, the greatest thing that's happened in college basketball in the time that I've covered it is the consistency of Bill Self. Mm. I mean, you can talk about guys who've won national championships, but listen, a bunch of teams won national championships that they weren't great teams necessarily, you know. They, they didn't do great all year. They just got hot. So I can't use that as a measuring stick, but – the consistency and how hard it's been to win in that building for, for 20 years almost, that is the greatest thing to me uh, that's happened in our sport over the last 20 years or so. I know that if you could give me a really good answer to this, you'd, you'd probably be making a, a whole lot of money telling other people how to recreate it. But do you do you have something that, that rises above where you say, yeah, this this combination of Bill Self and this program, that, that best explains the, the sustained success they've had over that time? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because it's like there are so many factors. You know, there are things that happened before Bill Self that helped Bill Self, right, mm-hmm. in this institution at this school. So there's a history there 
um, that he had the opportunity to take advantage of. There, there's a there's a loyalty um, to just that team and that program and, and what happens in that building. But then you you still have to be able to win consistently. Yeah. And I think the one thing about Bill Self that really stands out to me about his consistency is he never fell in love with the one and done era. Like, yes, he's he's signed, you know, freshmen who are McDonald's All-Americans. He's had guys, you know, year after year who kind of fit that profile, the five-star. But he's never built his team around those guys for the most part. I mean, you can talk about Wiggins and Embiid, that team. But, like, it it hasn't been a consistent thing. And and the fact that I think even the top freshmen who at other programs – they're being promised, you're going to come in and you're going to be the anchor of our team. Yeah. And now that's helped some programs. In the long run, it's hurt some teams as well who are trying to adjust even today. But I never felt like Bill sold those guys that promise. Because you can look at the list of five-star freshmen who come through that program and didn't play as much as they thought they would yeah. and didn't have the impact they thought they would, yet Kansas kept winning. So I, I think uh, the commitment to balance um, and navigating the one-and-done era without falling in love with it I think that's really been key to having some veterans in those tough times in the toughest league in America. Yeah, there, there has also been that way, I guess, some some common threads that connect teams from to teams, right? I mean, for all of the talk of, of Jalen Wilson this year, it's not like he just showed up. He's He's been within yep. the, the, the Kansas culture, and, and again, you know, several others with him as well, Dewan Harris, seeing his role grow. So you, you get a, a freshman Grady Dick, and it, it still kind of feels mm-hmm. like Kansas, even though the cast of characters changes a little bit. Uh, what about this iteration and, and what we saw with kind of a, an interesting mix of those guys uh, against TCU, where you do get kind of the Grady Dick game where you um, do not get anything resembling a fast start or Jalen Wilson's best. Did you learn anything new about Kansas in that win at TCU last night? Well, I think first off, Grady Dick's a great example of, you know, what I was saying earlier in that a freshman has to earn it with Bill Self, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Grady's had to earn it. You know, nobody gave Grady uh, minutes or a run or gave him opportunity. He earned it, you know, and I think you saw why in a game like that when the way he's just shown up. Um, what I saw last night was that Kansas is becoming the team again, and we saw this last year, where if it's a close game, you're not going to outplay them in that moment. Mm. And what TCU had at home, Mike Miles Jr. is back, although he struggled yesterday. That was a big part of Kansas. Kansas made him struggle. Jalen Wilson misses a free throw, and now you got to just defend. Like, you're in their building. They can come down, hit a couple of shots, hit a big three, change the game. Now you're on the road in overtime or something like that. And the way they defended, uh, the way Kevin McCullough played, I think I think Kevin, to me, is the is the biggest growth moment over the last month. Because mm. what has been the question about Kips? Who's going to be that consistent third guy, right? Yep. And I think Kevin comes to Kansas because you expect him to be that. And the way he defended last night, in the final possessions of that game, that to me was championship-level basketball. Like, that to me felt like what you're going to face in the Elite Eight, right, with a chance to go to the Final Four, like, that's what you have to do, and that's what Kansas did. And I I think, you know, you look at, I believe they have 14 quad one wins. I think think Purdue has nine. Yeah, Uh, I, I don't think anyone else has more than eight beyond that. So, you know, we can talk about all these other teams if you want. If it's about resume, if it's about the day-to-day challenge of competing, Kansas, to me, has risen to the top. And it was because of the way they finished games like they finished last night. Because that, to me, was that Elite Eight lockdown, 
we going to make a play, and we got to stop them from making a play, and that's going to be the difference in the game. And I think that's what I saw about Kansas last night. I'm glad you mentioned the quad one win thing because the first time I, I saw her, I don't know if it was on the broadcast or if it was on Twitter or whatever, but it, it really is one of those things that you just assume you hear wrong or that you, somebody had a typo. Like, can you, can you help me put that into any sort of context? I mean, you just said it. They, they have almost, what, 50% more than, than Purdue in second. And the, the rest of the sport is just not even within shouting distance. I mean, I guess it's, Partially about the non-con schedule, partially about the Big Twelve and how they've performed in it, I guess. But can you can you help me piece together exactly like what that means for a team to be that outrageously good in that in that regard? Yeah, I mean, no one's had a tougher path, you know. Like, no no one's come close to that. And, and I think that's the thing. If, if this if this is about being tested, especially in a year where I don't think you have a great team. Like, like to me, this Kansas team is pretty good. Mm-hmm. There's no team in America that would beat last year's Kansas team, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, so we don't have a great team, but the difference is going to be kind of who's faced the test, who's faced that adversity, and no one's done that more than Kansas. So, yeah. I think their path to the top has been more difficult than any other teams, um, and that has to count for something. And and yeah, they're different from last year. You got a freshman in Grady Dick who is doing his thing, Kevin McCullough, you know, being the transfer kind of figuring out what it means to play at Kansas. Jalen Wilson playing like an All-American, but also being surrounded with guys who are like, hey, I need your help, and those guys can help him. Dewan Harris, to me, is a guy who's like, okay, man, now there are these moments you saw yesterday where it's like, you, you got to be that dude that we've seen in the past and, and kind of make the right play. And to me, I would say of all the teams in America – Kansas knows itself more than any other team. Mm. And I don't think you could have said that a month ago. Uh, and now you stack up the 14 quad one wins. It's not just knowing yourself and not playing tough teams. Uh, it's knowing yourself against the toughest schedule in America. And I think that bodes well for them going into March. Talking to Myron Medcalf of ESPN, um, I, I've been obsessed with the Big Twelve, obviously, for a good chunk of this season. As we've, I'm not going to lie, our, our head's been kind of a football-shaped cloud around here for a good little while. This, yeah, you should be. This, this Chiefs team just never wants their season to end in January. It's it's fine with me. Yeah. Um, but but diving back in as the as the Big Twelve season, especially, kind of hit the the second half. Man, it is just thrilling to see where exactly this conference is at. Not just the top, where there's still doubt, even after KU gets that huge win on the road last night the the top of the conference is still up for grabs the depth is outrageous um i'm i am uh always looking for help contextualizing what the big 12 is doing right now we, we talked about it with uh, Matt Tate on the show yesterday who covers uh, KU for the Lawrence Journal World. And we were kind of going back even through basketball history. Like you have the real golden age, but at least in the modern era, I'm not sure I can think of anything quite like this from from the, the modern college game in, in terms of one conference being this excellent top to bottom, one through ten. Is there anything that you'd you'd add to that or, or other pieces of, of basketball history that you think need to be brought into that conversation when we talk about this conference? I think you just compare it to – other leagues, you know, like, so Ken Palm's a good measuring stick. Mm-hmm. Um, the lowest rated team in the Big 12 is Texas Tech, and they're 56. <laughs> the Big 10 has four teams that are ranked 64th or lower. Ohio State is at 64, Wisconsin 71, Nebraska 91, Minnesota's 221, right? So, like, there are some leagues in America that have some really, really bad teams, mm-hmm. and legitimately, the Big 12 only has good teams, if you look at those metrics. You go to the Pac-12, 
right, which no one talks about. Mm-hmm. The Pac-12, half of the league is 60th. The worst. Arizona State, 67. Washington State, 60th. Washington is 101st. 95th, Stanford. 207th, Oregon State. Cal, 262. So, like, you're not just talking about, oh, yeah, this is a really good league, and we say that every coach says we have a gauntlet in our conference. Every single league in America has three to four games where you're going to win those games, no matter what. Yeah. You know? Every single league in America outside the Big 12 has, you know, to me, three to four games where you're going to say, okay, those are four wins for our program. You play those worst teams in your league, you're going to win 75% of those games because they're just that bad. The Big 12 doesn't have that. Like, there's not a bad team in the league. The bad teams in the league would be champions potentially in (laughs) some of these other leagues, would be competing for championships. So I think that's the difference. There's nothing close uh, to the Big 12 if you believe the metrics and believe just how far ahead they are than legitimately everybody else. But you, you should go to Kimpom and just see like yeah. how many leagues have really, really bad teams, and then you go to Kimpom and look at the Big 12, and it's like, oh, legitimately every single team is good. It's just unbelievable, and it makes it makes for incredible theater every time because you just you never know yep. what it's going to be, um, which is also the case all the way there at the top. So obviously, KU's got one game up now from playing last night. Texas gets uh, Iowa State at home tonight, and then they still have to go to Baylor to TCU, and then they close it out in Texas against uh, KU. Uh, when you look at the top of the conference now again with with KU kind of the half game lead as it stands over Texas, Baylor just back there as well. Do do you give KU the inside track? Are we going to get the KU-Texas championship game to end it at the uh, end of the regular season? What do you expect there at the top? I'd love to see that championship game, Me right? Too. I mean, on the road in Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Texas has to take care of business in a situation that's not easy. I mean, Iowa State is still a tough team. Um, then they got to go to Baylor. Mm-hmm. they got to go to TCU, which you're going to be dealing with a very angry TCU <laughs> that feels like they had Kansas on the ropes and just could, couldn't seal the deal. So, I can certainly see that being potentially a, a championship game. Um, but I think either way, man, I don't know what college basketball fans are doing in the postseason, but the Big 12 tournament mm-hmm. is always great. I mean, this year it's going to be, I think, incredible. Um, and it's one of my favorites to cover. And this year could be epic. It's going to be, like you said, it's always a party. It's always a good time. Iowa State fans always just ransack the, the power and light district. Respectfully. not you know They don't yeah. trash it. They just fill it up with, with red and gold. And uh, yeah, this year's going to be just the absolute best. I, I want to spend a second with you on K-State and maybe even a mention of Mizzou even though Jason's not here. Uh, maybe we let Mizzou off easy actually and, and, and keep Jason <laughs> happy. But um, with, with, with K-State, they obviously end up in this really tough stretch where they lose a couple. They do get their win over TCU, lose a couple more. Oklahoma Oklahoma, you know, in Norman is uh, not a loss that, that at least around here we were expecting very much. But they, they get back on track over Iowa State in that game. The, the the first half deficit they overcome. Now, again, there's there's no chance to get your feet back under you and, and steady everything in the Big 12. Uh, but but do you have any feel of kind of where they stand now as, as they begin to, to look to the postseason and, and try to end the next uh, four games of the regular season strong? I mean, that's a big win over Iowa State, right? I yeah. mean, this is one of those leagues where you can lose four in a row, and it's not because you're a bad team. Like, you can lose three out of five, yep. three out of four, and it's not because you're a bad team. It's just because this league is just like that. So, you know, Iowa State, as good as they've been at home, they've struggled on the road. 
So uh, that just shows you sort of the competition. I think there are some key opportunities down the stretch for K-State, um, but it's not like it's going to be easy. You know, you get Baylor, uh, then you got to go to Oklahoma State. You host a, an Oklahoma team that uh, is still searching for, for some miraculous wins, some big wins. I don't think that's a bad team. Again, they're just they're, uh, in a really, really good league. Uh, and then you got to go to Morgantown at the end of the season, and it's like – you can put the 96 Bulls in Morgantown <laughs> and they're going to struggle. So uh, I think they're, they're, they have an opportunity to sort of right the ship and get back on that winning track. But I also think if you're Kansas State and you get into the postseason, who scares you? Like, what are you going to see yeah, that rattles you? You beat Kansas in overtime and you had to go play for play in a 12 round fight with your rival and you won that. Like, what's going to scare you? You went to Waco and you won. <laughs> What's going to scare you in the NCAA tournament that's going to make you go, oh, my goodness, we've never seen this? So I think that, to me, is the advantage of a K-State. It's like no matter where they enter seed-wise, who's going to want to deal with a team that's already fought Mike Tyson? You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. But I think they have a chance to really make a run once they get out of this league. It's just so funny that you could say that about so many parts and so many pieces of the Big 12, and it's all, it's all true. The whole league. About. It's who are they scared of. It, yeah. They find the Big 12 in the tournament? Cool. It's where, they, it's where they're born. It's like, yeah, it's like Bane yeah. in, the, in the Dark Knight. You know, they, they were really adopted by the Big 12. These guys were born yeah. in it. <laughs> yes. uh, I can't. Yeah. I can't say the exact same. Someone should put that on a shirt. We need to. You just see. You got to stop. Don't do this, man. Don't do that stuff publicly. Like you got to like keep that to yourself. Put it on a shirt, and then you sell it at the Big Twelve tournament. Since I was kind of a part of it, yeah. I only need twenty five percent of the profit. Done. You take the rest, and now we're cleaning up, man. But now we put it out into the atmosphere. Now somebody may take it. So we got to be better. We got to be more business savvy, I think, when it comes to things like that, because that's a great phrase. Let me see. You can take that. Let me see if this disclaimer works after the fact. Um, yeah. We were born in the Big Twelve. Is the intellectual property of Joshua Briscoe and Myron Medcalf? Yeah, there you go. As said there on the go. Zone on Sports Radio Eight Ten WHB. Not Jason Anderson. He's not here. He he's doesn't get it. a cut. No, that's, nope. he's that's out. Perfect. He's out. Uh, speaking of uh, speaking of uh, Mizzou products that might be out. God, that was the rudest transition of all time. Uh, but I want to—I just want to understand, Myron. They—they they go to Tennessee and they take that game, and it's like, oh boy, here it comes. Like this is what a galvanizing win for Mizzou. Uh, and then they fall to Auburn, and uh, fall is not even a strong enough verb. They lose to Texas A&M, but the, the rest of the games, this way, the rest of the way out, winnable for Missouri. Uh, so help me understand also again, kind of where this team stands and what what my expectations should actually be for Missouri in in. 2023. I think the best Missouri can get into the tournament and win a game, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even two in the right matchup. I mean, you, you beat the best team in America defensively, uh, one of the best in Tennessee on the road. I know it's a buzzer beater, but whatever, but you, you won that game. Yeah. Um, so I think that's your ceiling. You know, you have that really good win over Iowa State. They destroyed Iowa State. You know, they, they beat a very athletic, tough Arkansas team. Um, they just don't know how to maintain momentum. And what I always tell people about teams like that um, and what people, I think, miss is winning becomes a habit, right? Mm -hmm. But losing is also a habit. And we have seen so many programs, man, that you and I have watched three, four, five, six, seven years. Change coaches, change whatever you want, still the same things, right? You're still seeing the same kinds of losses. It takes time 
for teams to remember that they can create winning habits too. Yeah. And we talked about Kansas and their success. Guess what? You put on that jersey, and winning is just what you do. Mm. Like in those tough moments, you understand that you're part of a program where most of the time it's worked out in your favor. If you're coming into the Mizzou, K State, some of these programs that are kind of riding the wave, it's harder to remember that that can be you too. Mm. I think that's what you're watching Dennis Gates trying to kind of uproot. You can go and beat Tennessee. You can beat everybody. You don't just not show up on Valentine's Day against Auburn and get destroyed by almost 30. Mm. You don't just lose a home game to an A&M team that you had a chance to beat if you're just better defensively. So I think they can win these next four games. What is it, Mississippi State, LSU, I think maybe Mississippi again, and there's another one. Ole Miss, yeah, right? Mississippi State, Georgia, LSU, Ole Miss. Okay, so like you can win all of those games. Yeah. You can go into the SEC tournament uh, riding a four-game winning streak and kind of get back to being who you are. But I'm telling you, man, I've seen this in the years I've covered college basketball, and I've covered college basketball since 2007. Because I have watched teams during that span – that just kept winning, no matter the coach, no matter the personnel, because it was their pedigree. And I've watched teams that just could not find a way to sustain the momentum because they hadn't had the sustained period of success. And I think that's what Dennis Gates is fighting there. Like, mm-hmm. you got to remember how good you can be every single night and not just get excited after one big win and then forget to play the next game. Myron, I appreciate your insight. I appreciate your time. One final thing here, one suggestion. Let's not make T-shirts. Let's make sweaters and let's make hoodies because then people in Florida cannot, will not buy our products. Well, how about we just don't ship to Florida, right? Like (laughs) you order any of our stuff. We make the T-shirts, but you don't get to buy them. If you're in Florida, we're not shipping there. So how about that? Midwest on up. That's the we are selling yeah, within the it. confines of the Big Twelve country only. Definitely. Uh, yep, definitely. I'm with it. Myron Metcalf of ESPN, representing the uh, boys and girls clubs of Greater Kansas City. Appreciate the work you're doing for them. Appreciate you making the time for us here today, Myron. And uh, we'll we'll talk again on another beautiful 60, 65 degree day very soon. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Myron Metcalf, right here in the zone. The Zone with Jason Anderson. On that note, uh-huh. um, Renee has commented again. Sure. Also, if you get Mahomes to propose to me from you, I'd accept that and probably not be mad. Listen, if I had the type of power that would allow Patrick Mahomes to propose to whoever I want to, um, I would be taken. Starring Liam Neeson. On Sports Radio 810 WHB. Thanks again to ESPN Chief Meteorologist Myron Medcalf for joining us on behalf of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Greater Kansas City. I think he had some really great weather takes. I think we solved some things. I think we made some t-shirts. A very productive segment of radio with Myron. I really do just have some fundamental disagreements with people who think that 80 degrees is like a perfect day. It really, it is beyond me for a whole variety of reasons, but I, I, we, we, we litigated all of this already, but the fact that it is in the low to mid eighties every day this week in Florida right now, that is not something that I would celebrate when it, once it hits 80 degrees every day, I, I start planning my days around the hours that I'm inside to avoid all of that heat, days like yesterday, 
I actually haven't been outside since the show started today. I can crack open the window. I might go stand on the balcony, beer jeans, and play by play. I'll judge exactly how the temperature outside feels right now. But I like a little light jacket, little breeze. You know, maybe maybe reason enough to go ahead and put your hoodie hood up. Maybe maybe your ears get just a a little brisk in the breeze. Just want a hoodie or a sweater. I think that I'm that's good. the way to do it. I think the best weather generally comes with like orange leaves. That's that's where I'm at. It's less humid in the fall than it can be in the spring, but I'm not saying I need icicles to be happy. I'm just saying I've never actually been happy standing outside in weather that starts with a nine. And I don't I don't want it to be eighty degrees all the time. Why do I why do I want a nice constant layer of sweat? I don't get it. Warm clothes are comfy. It's a good it's a good feeling. So I was born in the Big Twelve. You were merely adopted by it. Hoodies uh, should be hitting a uh, should be hitting a shop near you. If any clothing companies would like to um, start that partnership, you can just uh, you can DM me. You know we'll work on it. I've not yet done the actual Bane impression yet. We'll see if if I need to do that. If we can get the licensing for Bane, that's going to be expensive. We'll figure it out. We just owe Myron was it twenty or twenty five percent? We just got to make sure we cut him in. Uh, that was Myron Medcalf of ESPN. I'm Joshua Briscoe with Beards McFly here with you today. Jason Anderson out, but uh, should be back soon. In worse news, um, it sounds like that quick return will likely not be the case for Royals outfielder Drew Waters. We'll talk to our own Todd Lebo, who's out in surprise right now, along with Seren Petro, who will be broadcasting live from there starting at 2. We'll talk to Lebo, though, in about half an hour from now. And uh, Annie Rogers tweets, Royals outfielder Drew Waters has a left oblique strain and will be out for six weeks, Matt Quattrero said. Waters was competing for the center field, dro- center field job this spring. Kyle Isbell will, quote, get every opportunity to grab that spot. More innings and bats will go to Nate Eaton, Edward Olivares, Samad Taylor, etc., um, also from Annie Rogers here tweeting out the updates for uh, Angel Zerpa on Hill Zerpa. Sorry, I had a mild setback with his shoulder, but will continue his throwing program. And then Brewer Hicklin is out for eight weeks with the right elbow strain. He's a non-roster invitee at the moment. But Drew Waters being out for six weeks is is certainly deflating as we were hoping to see that that spot open up a little bit and, and create some some competition there between Waters and Isabel at least in that center field job. But we'll talk we'll talk about that a little more with uh with Lebo here in about thirty minutes. It's kind of a weird time. I don't know if this is the Super Bowl hangover and college basketball is just at full speed already. Maybe it's just the new pacing of Kansas City sports, but in a lot of ways it feels like spring training kind of snuck up on us a little bit and I wonder if once the actual season arrives if it's going to feel the same way where um, you'd like to see the Royals being able to drum up some some momentum at this point and uh, you know, being able to hear from the guys out there in Arizona may may make that happen a little more, but uh, that is a, a tough bit of news right now to knock Drew Waters out, obviously, with Adalberto Mondesi now out of the picture. There's, that would have been another name you could have thrown in to say, all right, well, are we going to try the Mondesi and center field thing again? I don't know that that would have given you any better results, but Drew Waters out for six weeks with a left oblique strain per Royals manager Matt Quattrero. Um, 
I wanted I want to hit this uh, this clip. Beard, remind me. I literally just went and cut this during the commercial break. So welcome to producing on the air with uh, Josh and Beards in the zone. The uh, the athletic football show clip that I just uh, chopped up for us there. How uh, how long does that one go? Minute and a half. I'd like to be able to to talk and dance around that one a little bit. It's kind of an NFL draft forward facing look from a, a recent episode of uh, Prospects to Pros and the Athletic Football the Athletic Football Show feed. Um, how would you feel, Beards? About the continuing, we've done this a couple times in these last couple days, but the ever-elusive short middle segment, we had a nice long conversation with Myron, maybe we go ahead and call our timeout early here, and then we come back and, and get to run a four-minute drill instead of a two-minute drill on the other side, because uh, I, I think this little clip is just an interesting um, look ahead to, to maybe changing some things in the way we evaluate the NFL draft, plus it's all through the lens of one very specific Chiefs draftee who a lot of people were too low on entering last year's draft. Does that, uh, that time management, that clock management work for you? I have no idea what a short middle segment is. I'm just. I just figured we could try I mean, we here and see that. what it's sure, like, what you know. Just see, just see how it feels. Just you know, just to get a little wacky with it. Instead of rushing our way out at the bottom, we can just you know gave you a little unfortunate news there about Drew Waters, and I don't have anything else to say about the Royals until we get to Lebo. But I do want to bring you this little bit of audio from uh, from the draft process, and I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and tell you the spark of this conversation is a spark in and of himself because it's about Isaiah Pacheco and uh, where some draft analysts undervalued him and how we can keep from doing that again going forward in the near future. So we'll take another quick time out here in the zone. On the other side of this quick break, uh, I want you to hear from the Athletic Football Show talking about Isaiah Pacheco and what it means to look ahead to this year's draft, what we learned from Pacheco's rise, not through the draft boards, seventh round pick, an afterthought to being a huge part of the Chiefs' Super Bowl winning campaign. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're in the zone with Jason Anderson. All right, we take a timeout. We come back. We wrap up this uh, hour next. Do we not wrap up this hour? No, next? you still have that. Was your this is your last segment, buddy? I'm You're not so used, to, used this. to being. Oh You're my not goodness, used man. to this. You, you took a break. Left. You took a break way early. That's I thought, way too I thought early it was for a so break. Weird. On Sports Radio 810 WHB. Nothing wrong with a little early break. Just want to make sure we had time to dive into what I'm beginning to... Look, and it's the start of a process for me, okay? Starting to rev up for the NFL draft. Now, like, it's going to be here. I don't know if you guys caught that. It's going to be in Kansas City. So I don't think we're going to have any trouble making sure we're ready by the time it actually does arrive, but... I am I am just now beginning to put my big toe on the accelerator to try to get up to speed for the draft because the football season never ends and it really never ends when your team is playing in February. So uh, we talked about earlier with Adam Teicher that the franchise tag deadlines open this time next week. It's the combine. So just full speed ahead and maybe we'll see the the NFL disappear into a little bit of quiet for the month or so before training camp, but it is a ways away, and there is a lot to be discussed up until that. And uh, let me see if I've got all of the, uh, the the names right here from the Athletic Football Show. Uh, Andy Staples, Dane Brugger, Dane Brugler, who does the incredible Beast Draft Guide for the Athletic every year, and Lance Zerline of NFL.com 
we're all talking a bunch of draft nonsense, and by nonsense, I mean great sense. It's just still sort of nonsense to me, so I'm getting it all downloaded, you know, mentally and, and getting into the process, but the three of them... We're, uh, we're, we're uniting for an episode of Prospects to Pros, which you can hear on the Athletic Football Show uh, podcast feed. I'm just a, a big fan of, of their products uh, across the board. That, that feed is always producing great content in and out of season. But those three guys opened up their most recent episode uh, of Prospects to Pros, looking at the top 100 and everything going into this year's draft class. They opened up by specifically talking about the Chiefs. The episode came out shortly after the Super Bowl. And they, they started by talking about all of the, the places where the Chiefs set themselves up for this Super Bowl run through the draft. And they talked about the value of the corners and really shine a light on that. Um, they went through some of the places where they have agreed and disagreed with the Chiefs in the past. But then I thought that this chunk here was a, an interesting perspective, specifically revolving around Isaiah Pacheco, who the guys feel like they understood the skill set of while underestimating what his role could be at the pro level. So here's prospects to pros talking about Isaiah Pacheco. And I think it's a great example of evaluation and then valuation, you know, because I I think Mm -hmm. I'm I'm in the same boat. I, I went back to my uh, draft guide, looked up my report on Pacheco and I'm reading, this is the final three lines of his, of my report. Pacheco pounds his typewriter feet with quickness and violence as he picks through congestion and looks for a speed track to show off his wheels Though his urgent run style is a plus, it also works against him as he battles inconsistent tempo at the line of scrimmage. Uh, he's a fast, energetic runner with the toughness and pass blocking upside to stick in the NFL, but needs to add some patience and pace to his run diet. So, I, I mean, I think, I, like, I'm picturing him with the Chiefs. I, I think I nailed it, you know, just like what you're saying, Lance. But the valuation was where I was wrong because I gave him a seventh round grade, and that's exactly where he was drafted. So, you know, looked good on draft day, but in hindsight, should have valued him much higher because of what he adds with that energy, with those uh, the typewriter feet where it's just up and down, up and down, just uh, churning away those yards. So it's a, it's a good example of that evaluation versus the valuation. You have to get the evaluation part right to understand what type of player he is. But then it doesn't matter if you don't get the valuation right and understand, okay, what is he going to be for our team? Where do we value him in the draft? How do we get him on our squad? So it's it's really a, a, you know an important piece of this whole whole process uh, going through the draft. Valuation versus evaluation. It's a two letter difference. I, it's a one letter one letter difference. Shows how good I am at words and math. It's a small difference, but man, what an important one. You can evaluate a player perfectly and still misvalue them. Yeah, it's funny because I would say in most conversations around running backs, it would be the inverse of it all, right? Like, not to pick on Clyde Edwards Lair, but it was a first round pick, and we talked about him a little bit today. We can circle back and I'll explain why his conversation of his offseason is going to be a weird one. I don't think there's a super obvious solution for him. But the evaluation of, of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire could have been exactly right. It it wasn't, but it, it could have been. If it was everything that we saw from him, I think the main evaluation part the Chiefs probably got wrong on Clyde is having the necessary speed to pull off the stuff that you saw him do at times at LSU. 
where you, you could see him as a pass catcher, you could see him staying on the field in various personnel packages and being able to be an always-on-the-field sort of jack-of-all-trades who is never limiting what you can do offensively with his presence, right? I think that was kind of a... That was an interesting selling point, and, and maybe the Chiefs were largely right about that. Maybe they missed the speed, whatever it may be. But even if they would have nailed the evaluation, the valuation was clearly horribly wrong. Because even if you evaluated everything that he had perfectly, if you nailed all of his traits, you saw where his strengths and weaknesses were, it was going to be just about impossible for his value to be equal to the the, the pick that was used to select him. Isaiah Pacheco is a very fun inversion of that. Especially, you hear the description there, and and all of the guys kind of talked about being in more or less the same spot. Of like, yeah, I really, I saw what Pacheco was in college, and knew that yeah, he might need to work on his patience, and will that acceleration still be there if he does get patient? The answer was yes. The energy is there. But you know what? What is going to separate him from the pack at the NFL level? What makes him special? How can he be used in a way that will be useful? And I don't know what round would have been the appropriate time to draft Isaiah Pacheco now knowing what we know now. I don't really want to do running back draft value anymore, believe it or not. I am actually tired of it. I know it seems impossible, but it's true. I really am. But projecting what guys will be and seeing how their pieces fit together at the NFL level is a different thing than just properly evaluating what you see in college. Which, frankly, I think ends up with the help of guys like Dane Brugler and his draft guide. Um, we'll be talking to the KC Sports Network guys all off season. Their draft guide's on its way out. Pre-orders for that, they've got to open up, and all their links are across their social pages. Now, like the KCSN guys, and everyone does this, and so does Dane. They're giving you the evaluation and also the valuation. Here's what we've seen. Here's what he does well. Here's what he could do well at the next level. And here's where I think would be reasonable to draft him. Or here's a, a current pro he compares to. Here's where the fits make sense. Really good analysis gives you all of that. But as, you know, someone who's not doing draft 24-7 year-round, again, Dane's guide and the KCSN guide, those are, those are largely year-long <laughs> processes. I like to take other people's evaluations, see if it fits with what I know about the player, what I've seen, and then to try to make that valuation connection. I think that's the fun part of it all. Is all right, I, I think I have an okay view of what this player is or could be or where he stands now. Well, what, what kind of pick would I spend on him? And specifically, if you are the team doing the picking... That could change wildly. There, There is a world where drafting a player in the third round is right for one team, but taking him in the sixth wouldn't be worth it for another. And that's what makes all of this fun. It's also what makes it difficult. It's what, make, it's what makes it complicated. Even beyond like quarterbacks, right? Situation really, really, really matters for quarterbacks. I think Patrick Mahomes would have been really good if he would have gotten drafted by any of the teams in front of the Chiefs, but he, I don't think, would have been as successful anywhere else, and certainly not as successful as quickly anywhere else as he was in Kansas City. The Chiefs have made Mitch Trubisky look like a competent NFL quarterback. I bet they, I bet they probably would have. 
wouldn't have been Patrick Mahomes. It all it all plays together, right? But figuring out what a player can do for you and also what your coaching staff can do for that player. To go back to the corners again, which you, know, you can, if you want to listen to the whole episode, it's just like a longer conversation about all the defensive rookies that the Chiefs got all that performance out of and some places where they've agreed and disagreed and some of the guys weren't, you know, as high on Jalen Watson coming out of the draft. Now the Chiefs have him and he looks stupendous here. If you're a team that is, has shown a competence at maximizing a rookie cornerback, guys in later rounds, maybe who fit a specific measurable set or you, something in their mentality, what, as tangible or intangible as it may be, if you see a trait in a guy and you go, oh, that, that right there, we can develop into something more. That's a pick worth your team making because your use of that player, your development of that player is going to be more beneficial to them and to your squad than if he just ended up on generic Team X. On the other side, if you're the Chiefs and you keep finding these guys in the 4th, 5th, 6th rounds, what, what does it take for a corner to be worth, let's say, trading up into the early 20s to go and get? Which they also did for Trent McDuffie. This might be evident at this point, but I find the roster construction and team building side of NFL football to be really fascinating. Because we can have all these conversations in late February, and by... Early February next year, we could be having another conversation like we were in these last 12 months. We were we saw the end of the Chiefs last season, wondered what was going to happen with Charvarius Ward, with Tyron Matthew, with the other guys in the back of that defense. We try to figure out what the Chiefs are good at and who's going to develop. It's been a bunch of picks on rookie cornerbacks, throwing a safety there too. 12 months later, they're Super Bowl champions again. And it's not just evaluating those players, but it's also figuring out what they're worth. We go to Arizona with Todd Lebo next.